following message was recorded at Antioch Presbyterian Church, an historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCA.com. When you enroll in a college program or if you enter a training program, a vocational training program of some kind, um, or if you enlist in the military, reflect on this, you're probably going to need to move to some kind of campus or facility or even military base for a period of time. And as you're making that move, uh, if, you ref if you really think about the action that's going on in this transition point of your life, there are three steps you need to take. In the first place, you need to say farewell to those closest to you, if it's just for a couple weeks or for a few years or perhaps for the rest of your earthly sojourn. You're going to say goodbye. Something is changing there. And then the second thing you need to do is pack up or pick up your luggage and then walk through the door. That third step, proceed with the journey, continuing in it until you arrive at your destination be it just a few miles away or perhaps hundreds of miles away. And you know, there's a, a spiritual analog here to what happens when Jesus calls someone to follow after him. Spiritually, enrolling in the school of Christ is no different. You have to take those three steps as Christ makes plain to his disciples in our text this morning. Uh, he teaches this lesson of what happens as you become a disciple and as you embark on this journey with him, as you enroll in his school. He teaches this lesson at an important juncture of his earthly ministry that we've been considering for a few weeks now. Opposition is mounting against him. The Pharisees and their scribes are confronting him, it seems, at every turn with questions and objections. The Sadducees are uniting with their foes, the Pharisees, to challenge Jesus Christ. And even Herod is scrutinizing the progress of Christ's earthly ministry. And we know from Mark's gospel in particular, the Herodians are partnered and allied with the Pharisees to destroy Jesus Christ. Now, he just announced to his disciples, and particularly to Peter in our last text, making very clear for the first time in Matthew's gospel his mission of suffering and of death and then of glorious resurrection. His followers are now aware that he's heading to Jerusalem to die, though it hasn't really landed for them that the resurrection is shortly there to follow. Now, He's turning from his private council with Peter, which perhaps the others were overhearing, and he's addressing the whole group of disciples uh, without any ambiguity. And he says to all of them, to these his followers, this memorable, paradoxical, um, famous instruction on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And as he gives them this instruction, he also brings them encouragement and, to, and how to follow in this instruction as they enroll in his school. Encouragement that they will need because as his disciples, they're going to face what he faces, suffering, persecution, perhaps even martyrdom and death. For most of them, that is certainly the case. And he's preparing them now. At this juncture in his ministry, he's preparing them 
to lead the church after his ascension into glory. What I want to show you from this text this morning is no complex truth. It's a simple truth expressed in Jesus' instruction and encouragement to his disciples, and that is that Christ's disciples trust him as their Savior and follow him as their Lord. If you are truly enrolled in the school of Christ as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you trust him as your Savior and follow him as your Lord. And we're going to consider what exactly that means in our text under two headings today. In verse 24, we're going to see uh, Christ's school, the program for Christ's school, you might say. And then in verses um, 25 through uh, 26, actually three headings, in verses 25 and 26, we'll get, we're given the first reason for enrolling in Christ's school, and that is there's something eternal at stake. There are eternal stakes involved. And this is what should motivate us and push us to enroll in Christ's school. And then finally, the second reason in verses 27 and 28 is the coming judgment. Christ ends on a note of warning, and appropriately so when you consider the nature of enrolling in his school. It's no walk in the park, that's for sure. So look at verse 24 with me as we begin here, considering Christ's school, the program of his discipleship. Jesus said to all his disciples who were there gathered, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and he must take up his cross and he must be following me. Notice how I've adjusted the translation a bit. The new American standard is just fine, but I wanted to make clearer what it is Christ is presenting to his disciples, what he's saying to them, and notice how he frames it. If anyone wishes to come after me, he's setting this out as a universal truth. This is a principle of discipleship. It's not a, a, an occasional invitation or commission. This is a universal, lasting principle, continuing down to the present day, even until he returns. This is what following Christ looks like, what's involved. There are three parts to enrollment. Anyone who's interested in enrolling in his school needs to consider what's required and count the cost. In the first place, we have self-denial. Jesus says he must deny himself. What does this mean? Well, relating it back to that analogy from the beginning of the sermon. In self-denial, you bid farewell to somebody, somebody very close to you. You bid farewell to yourself. You say goodbye. You say goodbye to your self-reliance and egotism, thinking that everything's about you and that it all depends on you. You say goodbye to your self-adoration and your narcissism, uh, being uh, captivated by your own uh, excellencies, your own skills, your own wisdom, your own power, your own abilities. Buy, deny all of that, set it aside, and then you say farewell to your selfishness. You no longer live for yourself. You live for Christ, is what he's telling you. You live for God and his mission in the world. Whatever he calls you to do, ultimately, it's all to the glory of God. Now, where does this begin? The beginning of Christian discipleship is in that forsaking of your own power, forsaking of uh, egotism, as I put it, your self-centeredness, thinking that everything depends on you, that the weight of the world is resting on your shoulders, and you can bear up under it. You throw that away. You say bye-bye to your self-reliance. The beginning of Christian discipleship is, indeed, faith in Christ as Savior. 
recognizing that he alone saves. He alone is able to save. And thus, he alone is worthy of our deepest love and adoration, and therefore we are to live for him alone. The Reformers put it, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. In our natural condition, we live to the glory of ourself. We love ourselves alone, and everything else is subordinated to that. And we proceed in a course of self-destruction, even as we think that we're going towards self-salvation or something. But Jesus says, set all of that aside. Deny yourself if you're going to be following me. Beyond absolute self-denial and conversion to Christ and being born again and having this faith in, in him and his all-sufficiency and his unique power as the God-man to save sinners, beyond that absolute self-denial, you also have what we might call a comparative self-denial in our relationships. That is, we deny ourselves not just because of who Jesus is, but for his sake, you see. And then we deny ourselves for the sake of those around us, putting the interests of others in front of our own interests, even as uh, Paul will get into in his epistles and speaking about the life of the church and what that looks like. And then, and Jesus makes this point very interestingly in this text today, and we're going to get into it some. You deny the interests of the flesh for the sake of the interests of your soul, recognizing that the eternal interest of your soul is secured in Christ alone. So what does this look like? Well, whenever you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to many, many other things. To put it in university terms, if you apply to 10 different schools and you get into all 10, you can say yes to only one, which means saying no to the other nine, doesn't it? And so that's what this looks like. As we say yes to Jesus Christ, we're saying no to whom? To ourselves. To ourselves, our fleshly sinful selves. Now, the second thing Jesus says is that the disciple must take up his cross uh, what he's saying is you need to pick up your cross and to join in the march. The picture that perhaps would come into the disciples' minds is exactly that, what that, that Christ would himself go through. Remember, he didn't climb up uh, the hill by himself. There were two others carrying their crosses as well. It's a very common ancient Roman practice. When there was a crucifixion, you usually took care of a group of criminals all at once or condemned men. And so everyone would be carrying their cross in a line all the way up the mountain to where it is they were going to be put to death. Now what this means is, in terms of taking up your cross, is implementing Matthew 6.33, where Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now in that text, he was uh, speaking very positively, as in don't be anxious, don't be worried for anything, your Father will take care of you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. But now... He's telling his disciples to take up their cross, to seek first God's purposes in the world with eyes wide open to this reality, that you shall suffer, perhaps even bleed and die for the sake of God's kingdom and his righteousness. He's bringing it all the way home. You're following after me. This is what I'm going to do. Thus are you prepared to do what I shall do. Are you prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake? 
to suffer for Christ's sake? That's the question he's putting before all those who would follow from him. And, and how we do that now, how we embark upon that work and continue in it is continually be repenting. Purge out of your mind any sense or expectation of personal interest, of personal advancement among men and in society. Isn't this a problem of the Pharisees throughout Matthew's gospel? They have this outward show of piety and of religiosity, but at heart, they're doing everything for themselves. They don't have any interest in God. They're just looking out for their own interests, and they're dressing it up in hypocritical uh, religion. And Jesus is saying, no, pick up your cross and suffer for my sake. Put out of mind any expectation of personal advancement or self-interest. Yes, God will surely provide for you in this life. Hasn't he provided for us wonderfully? Reflect upon the gifts you've received from his hand in his service, following after him. But your, if your life is anything like mine, the provision you've received is not anything that you've expected or could have even planned for in total terms. Indeed, the provision will surprise you. And what shouldn't surprise you, though, is the suffering, the pain, the anguish of discipleship. Now, the third thing he says is you must be following me. Translated, follow me. But it, it, there's a continual nature here. Be following me. Persevering, enduring in the following. It's, it's not enough to begin a race. What really matters? It matters how you end a race, right? It's not enough to begin a project. Anyone can do that. It matters how you finish a project. If you, uh, that's, that's the basis upon which we'll be judged. Now, recognize that as you take direction from Jesus in this, there should also be a great encouragement that you take. As Jesus says, be following after me. Because, consider this, however heavy your cross is that you bear, that individual foreordained complex of suffering and anguish and pain, that you will experience for Christ's sake, however oppressive it may seem at times, yet Christ Jesus is bearing the heavier end of that load, isn't he? Indeed, as he says, be following me, what he's saying is, I am coming alongside of you, I am leading you, I'm carrying the heavier portion for you. Take encouragement, therefore, dear Christian, that you are following after a Savior who is resurrected, is victorious. Take encouragement, not neglecting the fact that the suffering is real and the pain is, is deep, even to the soul, but knowing that Christ is your very present help in this trouble too. His love will not let you go, and he will not let go of that heavier portion that is his to bear. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17, on uh, perseverance, on the preservation uh, or perseverance of the saints, which is really the preservation of the saints, says this, It is the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, who is praying for us in heavenly places, and the abiding of the Holy Spirit that is in our hearts, in our midst, that grants us this endurance. In other words, as Jesus says, be following me, he's not saying it's up to you to be following me. He's saying, be following me, I have you by the power of God. Now, dear Christian, if you're here today, depending upon your own strength, then it's time to remember this, that Christ is your Savior. 
Don't depend on yourself. Say bye-bye, farewell to self. And lay hold of Christ as your Savior. Remember that his salvation was won um, not by deeds of human strength. And your salvation is not up to you and to your own merit. No, may it never be. Rather, it's received as divine grace through faith alone, through believing and resting in Christ's perfect person and work as you deny yourself coming to his word to receive it with submission and gladness of heart. In verses 25 through 28, Christ our Savior, Lord, now enforces this directive of self-denial, of cross-bearing, of endurance and perseverance in following him. He enforces this directive with sound reasons, two sound reasons, generally speaking, for trusting and following him. Note the language that he uses in verses 25 through 27. For whoever wishes, for what will it profit, for the Son of Man is going to come. He's giving reasons for the direction that he gives. He's enforcing his direction with encouragement. So the first one is really uh, laying before his disciples the eternal stakes involved in this. Why should you follow after Jesus Christ? Why should you deal with the pain, the humility, the indignity, the suffering, the social alienation perhaps, being rejected by men? Why? Because eternity is at stake. Look at what he says. For whoever wishes to save his life, and if you have the New American Standard there, you can see the footnote. The word there used for life is soul. Whoever wishes to save his soul will lose it, but whoever loses his soul or his life for my sake will find it. There is salvation in forsaking self for Christ, is what Jesus says. Fasten this saying to your memory. It's a very memorable saying, isn't it? This paradoxical truth that if you seek to save your life, it'll, it'll fly away, you'll lose it. If you seek to lose your life for Christ's sake, well, then you will save it in a way. It will be saved. It will be yours. You will have it. But this is a universal truth. Very simply put, salvation is found in Christ alone. Salvation is found in Christ alone. And all of our self-centered schemes to address the guilty conscience, to win for us some lasting legacy, or whatever it is, all these schemes will come to nothing. Be thrown up into the wind like so much chaff and blown away. So what do we do with this? Well, in light of this, what we might call a paradoxical promise of salvation in Christ, resolve... Therefore, to spend and to be spent in his service, in whatever calling he gives you to do in this life. That doesn't mean you're all going to be ministers or officers in the church or missionaries. No, hopefully some of you children will be called into such glorious callings. But there are many glorious callings in this world. Doctors, lawyers, politicians, uh, businessmen, professors, whatever the case may be, tradesmen, welders. We know the need. We've heard it much in our culture, in our society. Uh, whatever it is, that the Lord calls you to put your hand to, be it in a field or a factory or a classroom or a pulpit, whatever it is, spend and be spent for Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying. Evaluate all you do by this metric. Is it for Christ? Is it according to Christ's 
word. Pray for wisdom to see and will to follow him. There's a story from the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt that one day they were planning some military uh, uh, campaign abroad and his war cabinet or his, uh, his cabinet comes in and the secretary of war finds him first and, and there he has laid out before him commentaries and Bibles and maps and, and the secretary of war says, Mr. President, what in the world are you doing? And he says, I'm seeking for the will of Christ in our present situation. He wasn't preparing a sermon or a Bible study. He was just going about the work, the noble work to which God had called him, being president of the United States in his day. And what was he doing? Seeking for the will of God in Christ and in his word. Isn't that what Proverbs 4 is all about? Put the word of God into your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. And so pray, dear ones, for wisdom. And pray that the Spirit would would mold and fashion your will to follow after Jesus and to be seeking for his interests in this world. Now, this is foolishness. It's the height of folly to the world around us. But this is the wisdom of God, Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians. And isn't this heavenly wisdom? Because who holds your eternal destination in his hands? Who determines the flight of your soul, heavenward or hellbound at your death? It's not the stock market. It's not uh, the will of the people around you. No, it's God alone. So who else would you serve? Indeed, that's Christ's point here. Eternity is at stake, so go to the one who has eternity in his hand. And what is this life? It is to know the Father and the Son. As Jesus says in John chapter 17, eternal life is this, to know the Father and the Son. And we might add, even to the forgetting and losing of the self's interests in this world and the self's obsessions with self in this world. Now, the danger of worldly gain is then highlighted in verse 26. In case the disciples aren't getting the point, in case you're not getting the point already, that eternity is at stake and that Christ alone can secure for you your eternal standing with God and righteousness that in Him alone is the love of the Father made known to the world. In case that's not clear already, notice the warning that He gives here in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing you can give is his point. Now, I know a man with a tormented conscience. And I've talked to this, this man on several occasions about that. And I said, well, what, what, are, what are you troubled by? And one time he said, my relationship with my family, it's not what it ought to be. Another time he said, well, I don't do enough community service. I think I'm going to get involved in a community organization. Another time he said, I don't have enough connection with people in my neighborhood. I think I'm going to join this or that association. And what is he doing? What is his soul looking for? His soul is looking for relief for his tormented conscience. He can't deal with his sin. He can't deal with the sense of, of distress in his heart. And what is he doing? He's reaching out into all the world and all that it offers, the good and the bad, and he's trying to find relief for that torment, that pain. But will he find it there? No, he will not. Because even if you got all the world and you brought it before God and laid it down at his feet and you said, may I come, he would say, not on this basis. That's not enough. 
take mental stock of all that you own. Think about it. All property, your land, toys, books, whatever the case may be. Take stock of all your skills. Take stock of all your experience, all the good that you've ever done to anybody. The children you've cared for. The education you've received. Whatever it is you could claim as your own. Now imagine that they're all represented in your arms as so many gold bars. Now multiply them up so that you just barely bring them forward. And bring them to heaven's gates and present them as your entry fee. And hear this. It's not enough. It cannot purchase your immortal soul. These finite things shall perish. They'll be burned up in the great conflagration at the end of the age. They are not immortal, but your soul is. Jesus, in his saying here, has a force of logic that is inescapable. Don't you get it? The answer to Christ's question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? The answer to that question is nothing. All that the world has to offer, all that you could ever acquire, anything that you could ever do will not be enough to purchase your soul from the grave. Now, lay all that stuff down. Lay it aside. Put it out of your mind. And say instead, at heaven's pearly gates, say instead, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. In the words of the hymn, Christ alone suffices for immortal souls. Therefore, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Now, the, the second reason that Christ gives is here in verses 27 and 28, isn't it? Here, Jesus shifts. And from the encouragement of eternity, he now turns to the certainty of coming judgment. And he gives a warning to these people. Now, warnings are very important in Scripture. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, famous... Uh, 18th century, ninth, early 19th century, I guess 18th century, uh, slave trader turned into an evangelist and a pastor, was once ministering to a woman, an elderly woman shut in, in her home, and he recorded this in his diary, I believe it was Newton, and she said, Pastor, you have been so good to present to me the beauties and the loveliness of Christ in all of our conversation, but I have this against you. You have not warned me enough about the dangers of hell. You've not warned me enough of the terrible nature of his judgment. And I need both, for the word is balanced, isn't it? it presents both in their totality, the beauty and loveliness of Christ, and also the terror and the majesty of his judgment, and the certainty of coming judgment. Indeed, that's what we see in our text Today, as Jesus balances his presentation, his argument to his disciples, in verse 27, he talks about that second coming at the end of the age. And then in verse 28, he's speaking more of his imminent kingdom coming and breaking in, even as a confirmation of that which awaits the final day. Look at verse 27 with me as we consider Christ's second coming. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds, even as we sang from Psalm 62 and as we considered from Revelation 22 earlier in our service. Now, 
The Son of Man, this is his preferred title, isn't it? How he describes himself drawing perhaps from Zechariah, but more likely and more certainly he's drawing from Daniel chapter 7, the description of the Son of Man coming in the glory of God with all power and authority to judge the nations and rule over the earth. He is the one sitting behind uh, or behind the judge's desk with the gavel in his hand. And when that judge's gavel drops, the verdict is announced, is what Jesus is saying here. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds, pronounce his judgment to the impenitent, to the self-obsessed, the self-seeking, the self-motivated, the liars, the sorcerers, the immoral, even as we read from Revelation 22. What is it that awaits them on this judgment day? Paul tells us the wages of sin is death in Romans 6, 23. But to those who denied themselves, who therefore trusted in Christ's righteousness through persevering faith, born of the Holy Spirit above, even amidst much suffering and trial and persecution in this life. What does Paul say in Romans 6, 23 in the second half? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you see the free justification through faith alone in no way contradicts what Jesus talks about here of repaying men according, quote, to their deeds, of gifts graciously bestowed, a judgment graciously rendered at the end of the age. Both of these things are all of God's grace. And Jesus sets them before his disciples, not just as an incentive but also as a warning of coming judgment. Christ's point here is that you must prepare yourself for this great day by forsaking yourself today. Then, having forsaken yourself, having bid farewell to your selfish interests, as I've said again and again, be steadfast, knowing day by day that afflictions or rewards that you experience in this life do not necessarily signal the final verdict which will be based on God's heart-searching judgment of your answer to this question. Do you believe in Christ Jesus? In whom do you trust for your salvation? My friends, Christ's second coming will be as glorious and terrible as his first advent was humble and unimpressive. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning Children, perhaps you consider all that your parents say about a crucified carpenter in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, and sometimes you wonder, what is so impressive about that? How in the world can I have all my hope wrapped up in, in that, in that forsaken man, in, perhaps you wouldn't use this language, but a backwater Roman province of an empire that has since been destroyed and Fallen into the dustbin of history. Now, don't be fooled by the devil's lies about Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, he was handed over for a shameful death, but he was in full control of all the proceedings that led to his judgment and execution, as we will consider them in months to come. And he was in full control when he breathed his last and paid the penalty for the sins of many. And he was full of the Spirit when he rose again and burst forth from the grave, even before the decay could set in to his flesh. And he is in full control today, even now, of your eternal state. Our Savior 
is the exalted Lord and King, the Son of Man, the Son of God incarnate, and He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. He is exalted and coming. Now, the certainty of this second coming at the end of the age, it's certified to us, it's confirmed for us, even in history. Look at verse 28 for me. What is it doing here? Jesus seems to go off on a rabbit trail, doesn't he? Truly I say to you, by the way, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, now we know, standing 2,000 years later, that all of the men that were there listening to him died before Christ came again, didn't they? Because Christ hasn't come again yet. We haven't had a bodily return of Christ to this earth to, to claim his people for himself. So what is he saying here? Well, he's actually predicting, he's prophesying for his disciples that they will receive in their lifetime a confirmatory sign. Some of them will receive a confirmatory sign that the second judgment or the final judgment at his second coming is certain and sure. Now, Kings of old used to send confirmatory signs with their letters and their correspondence to their subjects by impressing hot wax with a personal emblem uh, with what they called a signet ring. They even did this in ancient Rome. It was kind of like your signature. You alone had it, or those that you authorized to use it, and it was a true mark that only the king, the ruler, could produce. Now, our king here in verse 28 promises confirmation of this message he's just delivered to his disciples in the previous verse. Certain signs of his activity in history as the Son of Man, as the judge of all the earth, would become evident even in the lifetimes of that first generation of Christian leaders and of church leaders. Here, he may be referring at least partially to the transfiguration, which is going to take place in the very next text. That is certainly a live possibility, and we're going to consider that next week. But it's most likely that what he's referencing here when he's talking about the coming, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, what he's most likely referencing here is those signs of the kingdom's progress which will take place after his death, namely his resurrection, his ascension into glory, the rushing of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the ingathering of great multitudes of first Jews and then Gentiles into the church, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 where King Jesus uh, renders temporal judgment upon the wicked Pharisees and scribes of Sanhedrin, breaking their power and bringing an end to their blasphemous hypocritical sacrifices. And then the explosive, even miraculous growth and extension of the church through ancient Rome, even now to the ends of the earth today. All of these things, at least up to the explosive growth through ancient Rome of the church, are things that the disciples, some of them standing there listening to Jesus in Matthew 16, 28, would witness. And what are they? He's setting them before them as a confirmation of what is coming at the last day. Indeed, nothing other than the power of Christ can explain what has happened in the progress of the church, both recorded in the New Testament and then in the pages of history ever since. So, as you take this text, verse 28, what do you do with it? Do you doubt that Christ is indeed coming again to judge the living and the dead? Do you scoff at the apparent slowness of the Savior, His delay 
in his return, the Apostle Peter, who was present here as we know, he prophesied that in the last days there will be those who mock this message, this hope of glory and the glorious return of Christ. Well, if that describes you, then consider Christ's words and remove all doubt from your mind and from your spirit. Remove all doubt, for the kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming now, and it's spreading now. And eventually, at God's appointed time, it will come in its fullness, in the consummation of the ages, and at the judgment of Christ upon his physical return. Be patient, therefore, beloved believers. Be patient Watch and hope and labor and work, spending yourself for the extension of the kingdom until that blessed day when our Savior returns. But, pastor, how can I cultivate patience in a world that's so restless, with a news cycle that's so rapid, with so many distractions, with so much anxiety, for something to happen, for something to change? How can I be patient? Well, meditate on the demonstrations of Christ's glory. Meditate on how it is the Son of Man has come in His kingdom over the years and in the ages recorded here in Scripture and in church history. In your meditating on the kingdom, on His resurrection, His ascension, on Pentecost, on the growth of the church, even of, of contemporary uh, efforts and missions, and in the reformation of the church, don't dwell merely on a place or on a particular people. No. Consider how all of these historical events, everything that's happening, point our direction to the king himself. For where the kingdom is, that's where the king is. And where the king is, that's where the kingdom shall be. And he is worthy above all of your attention. And as you meditate upon him, their rest is found. Now, it is fitting that Christ our king ends this instruction on a note of warning. You see, when... When he brought his school program in front of his disciples, he didn't set it before them with a glossy brochure, with some kind of uh, inspiring video commercial on the glories of following Jesus or even a slick sales pitch. No, not, not, none of that. Rather, think of what he did. He opened with something of a caution. If anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wishes to do this, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross, and he must be following me. It's going to be hard. It's going to be arduous. You see, Christ's disciples, if you're going to be a disciple, Christ's disciples trust him as their Savior and follow him as their Lord, even into and through sufferings, persecutions, and death, if it be God's will, if that be your cross to bear. Now, who would agree to enroll in such a school? How crazy would you have to be to sign up for this program. Fools for Christ. Only those who recognize the truth and the reasons Christ gives. That is the eternal stakes and the coming judgment. Do you not know that your soul is immortal, Jesus says, outweighing all the value of everything in the world? And do you not know that your soul will be judged, that you shall stand before the judgment? Upon what do you rely? What will you appeal when you stand before the bar of God's holy, righteous, and unremitting justice? There is but one Savior, and He is Jesus. There is but one payment, and it is the blood 
of the Lamb shed for sinners on his cross. But this Savior is freely offered to all who hear the summons, come unto me. Lay down your burden of selfishness. Take my yoke upon you and find rest for your souls. And this Savior, our Jesus, is indeed the one and the same, the Son of Man, the mighty Lord of glory, deserving not only your devotion, but also your adoration and your faith and your trust as you look forward to his return. He will lead you aright, for he knows the way through suffering to glory. He is the resurrected one. He didn't simply die, though he did do that. But he burst the bonds of death in his resurrection. That's the glorious good news that we have to offer. And he did it for the sake of sinners. So, if you wish to come after him, to enroll in the school of Christ, to be his disciple, then what must you do? You must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, and you must be following him. Let us stand together for prayer. O oh Lord, our God in heaven above, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he has been revealed to us not only as judge, but as Savior and as Lord and friend. We thank you, O oh God, for the wisdom that he dispenses by word and spirit even to his people today. And we thank you for the progress of the gospel ministry spreading to the ends of the earth. We thank you for the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. O oh Lord, save particularly, we pray, for our children this day, save our children and claim them for yourself, that they would follow you and know joy, indescribable joy in your service and in your worship. Oh Lord, grant to us the spiritual life which is held forth in Christ and belongs to him alone. It is his alone to give. And we pray that you would let us to know the love of the Father, even and especially in our afflictions, our trials, suffered for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Antioch Presbyterian Church. For more information about Antioch, visit us at our website at antiochpca.com.